I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I've long admired Lisa's writing, and this is very much in the lineage of her previous books. Both of her beautiful memoir, Losing the Dead, where she reached into her family's past with such fine-tuned sensitivity and precision, and of her work on psychoanalysis and the history of the mind, which many of you will perhaps know best from her very brilliant Mad, Bad and Sad. That book uses the stories of the mental lives of individuals, both to investigate their place in the power structures and historical forces of their age, and to learn about the human psyche more generally. This new book continues that vital work, using Lisa's own experiences of grief as a kind of case study to understand grief, anger, loss and love, and also to understand the way that these competing forces animate our psyches, perhaps especially at the beginning and ends of our lives, um, and in particular play a complicated role in our larger political and social life. It's a book that's very difficult to describe briefly because it's so complex and so ambivalent never resting on a single point of view without opening that up (coughs) to questioning in turn. I think we'll struggle to give a full account of it this evening, and I very much hope you're all going to read it for yourselves. But we'll try to open it up and try to at least ask, if not answer, some of the questions that it raises so vitally and vibrantly. We're going to have a few passages along the way, and we're going to start with the opening. Good to start by my thanking you, Lara for that wonderful introduction. That was, um, I don't really need to say very much more. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So um, this is a difficult book for me to read, in in part because it's about quite difficult matter. And even though I'm through a lot of it, um, when I go back to it, I still occasionally kind of go, "Ah." (laughs) so here we go. The small translucent bottle of shampoo outlived him. It was the kind you take home from hotels in distant places. For over a year, it had sat on the shower shelf where he had left it. I looked at it every day. I couldn't bring myself to move it or to use it. When I finally picked it up, it was caked and slightly clammy to the touch, like perspiring, not quite healthy skin. I put my glasses on to make out the indistinct print on the front of the curve. For the first time, I could see that next to the stylized palm tree, vanishing letters spelled out memory of senses. I put the bottle back on the shelf, quickly. Though I had rid the house of bags full of clothes, unopened packs of tobacco, wires that belonged to defunct machines, and some of the other random leavings of life, 
I somehow couldn't chuck that tiny bottle. Superstition. We all know the dead inhabit select objects, even when we might also believe that they've gone to meet their maker or joined the elements in a field or river or their everlasting souls have traveled up to heaven to be judged by a supreme court at which angels bear witness to their deeds, good and bad, and 11 months of purgatory await. Superstition, from the Latin over plus stand. A presence stands over us, one whom we fear or who might just bring us luck. Or perhaps, as in surveillance, that presence compounds security and fear. Cicero, that hoary old philosopher who, according to one of my school teachers, had intoned something about diseases of the mind being more common and more pernicious than those of the body, had considered the word to be a derivation superstitiosi, literally those who are left over, the survivors or descendants. It is they who must perform the funeral rites for their dead. It is they who need superstition. One of my superstitions as a performer of funeral rites seems to lie in a miniature bottle of shampoo, latterly found to bear the name, memory of senses. Had I unwittingly taken in that name well before noticing it? None of my senses had been behaving particularly well in the 14 months and rising since he had died. My sight and hearing had all but abandoned the world. They were overrun, smothered by the assault from within. Maybe I had something in common with that other adult mourner, Hamlet, whose father's untimely death alongside his mother's way of grieving, curtailed too swiftly and sexually from his perspective as a son, sets up a fury in him that some term mad. He feels surveyed by the state, by his father's ghost, and most of all, by his own watchful, overwrought self. So I wanted to begin by asking both what everyday madness is here, but also the kind of related question of how did this book come about? What what set you to sort of wanting to moving out of that experience and wanting to write it, and and why this? Um, well, I think everyday madness, and some of you will recognise this from other extreme moments in life, because I think <coughs> there are extreme moments, and a particular concatenation of things can come into play, or a particular concatenation of um, mental and emotional events can come into play, one of which is this state of superstition in which everything in the world takes on extra meaning or excessive meaning, and coincidences seem to come into being. Um, the other is a kind of, of self-preoccupation, a kind of inner preoccupation. It's not a preoccupation with the self so much as what is going on within that self. Um, so that you occasionally move into moments of absence. I mean, it's in some ways, in that description, not unlike when you're writing furiously and there are other things happening that don't allow you to connect with the world um, in quite the usual way. Um, but it's more agonized than that. It has an extra edge of agony. Certainly for me, it did. And the other thing that probably characterizes that state is a sense that, that what Freud would have called the superego has taken hold of you in a rather nasty and punishing way. Um, so that uh, probably uh, there's a lot of self-abasement and an inability to, to live up to an image that you would in ordinary states probably have of yourself. And I, I recognize that state from, you know, um, 
some of the studies that I've done in that area, mm. where there is a kind of a punishing voice, internal voice, that says, no, no, it's not like that, don't, you know, um, brrr, I mean, all of that. Um, and so that's mm -hmm. the kind of everyday madness, but, but at its edge of the everyday, I mean, it is actually a kind of madness, but on the surface you can see quite well. It's a kind of, people, you know, Lacanians will often talk about the fact that, and I'm not a Lacanian, but Lacanians will often talk about the fact that people are generally in quite ordinarily in a state of psychosis because the world is over meaningful <laughs> and and you know that there are paranoid forces at work well that's very much like a state right. i think for some people of grieving um for many people probably for or for a lot of people in the west that inhabit a form of individualism inflected by psychological discourse <laughs> Um, what was the second part of that So question? really, how, how from that state, which doesn't sound that conducive to producing a kind of wonderfully ordered memoir, this came about, and, and why this, this in particular? This, I started working on this book, or I started the actual writing of it, um, a good time after John had died, probably about 14 months. I think that's what it says in there, and that's probably righter than my memory now. Uh, <laughs> the reason I started writing it is that I'm still very close to that state, but it seemed that I was getting a kind of a point of view on it. I was becoming a little like Montaigne. Montaigne is always one's kind of, you know, ideal character when, when trying to pen anything about the self. Because what he talks about, in fact, I wrote down the quotation, I can read it to you, is, is the fact that when he's writing about the self, he's also quite capable of not being swallowed up by that self. It's, this is not... I mean, in some ways, it's an expressive book because I wanted to communicate a state to you. Um, but it's not expressive in terms of an overriding emotion that was taking hold of me while I was writing. And Montaigne says, uh, it's in the, on the art of conference, I dare not only speak of myself, but to speak only of myself. When I write of anything else, I miss my way, wander from my subject. Well, that, that's not quite my case. But the second part works. I am not so indiscreetly enamored of myself, so wholly mixed up with and bound to myself, that I cannot distinguish and consider myself apart, as I do a neighbor or a tree. And I had begun to be in that state where I could and I have always, I've always been rather self-reflective. I think that's a, probably an accident of growing up with too many languages. That you, you know, you can be many people and you can watch yourself from a distance. Um, and I could see myself um, mm -hmm. and, and the strange world that I was inhabiting. And I knew it wasn't a, a very happy one. And I thought, because I wanted to write it, and, and writers quite often need to write in order to, to come to some place. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that need is interesting because it's meshed with. Yeah, people can think that that need means that you're kind of writing out of emotion, but it's not always that. It's it's partly the need to to step away. No, I mean that that's why, in a sense, I quote yeah. Montaigne because I don't think, although I think there's probably a lot of emotion in this book, and there's probably quite a lot of passion in one way or another, and it probably sounds because I can be that kind of writer when I choose, as if I'm gripped by it at that time and place. That's because I'm enacting mm -hmm. the character that I also am, but also uh, I'm not altogether anymore. <laughs> okay, it, it's like it's very simple. It's like Wordsworth, emotion recollected in tranquility, and that's what what memoirs on the whole do. And did it begin with these very specific scenes about grief, or did you know the whole shape of it from the start? Well, it actually began with that bottle of shampoo mm -hmm. because, for some reason. 
that bottle wouldn't leave me alone, and I, I couldn't I couldn't get rid of it. It just sat something. I have this standing shower, which isn't terribly beautiful, but it has a ledge, and on the ledge there's shampoo and blah blah. And this little bottle of shampoo is about that big would stare me in the face every day, and I knew that I should get rid of it because it was John's, and you know one shouldn't hold on to things for too too long. In any case, it wasn't very beautiful. It was and it was rather clammy to the touch. Um, but you don't wear your, your glasses in the shower, so I'd never really looked at it properly. And then one day I suddenly thought, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to see what this writing says. I mean, I can't see it. You know, I'm blind half the time. So I put my glasses on, and suddenly I saw that next to this rather pretty, simple palm tree, it said, Memory of Senses. And I thought, oh my God, that's it. That's what it's about. And that's why I haven't been able to get rid of it. It took me quite a while longer to, to put it away. I didn't quite get rid of it. <laughs> I put it somewhere else. <laughs> and did you know from the start that the book would have these three sections? For people who don't know, there are these. maybe tell us just a little bit about what these three sections are. Okay, so the way the book happened, and it, it did happen like this in part because I didn't know where I was going to end up. I just started writing, and I wrote the first section quite quickly. Which is about grief which is about grief, and this predominant emotion of anger that I was caught up with within the grief, which I hadn't expected. I mean, you know, I think we all have an internalized emotion of what mourning is like, or an internalized idea of what mourning is like. And in my idea, maybe, and I was obviously wrong, even though I had read books about this, I had thought that it was a state of missing somebody, of, of, of a kind of of elaborate nostalgia, if you like, in which all the good things of life came back, but none of the bad ones. Um, and in fact, the state of grief for me was very, very different. It hadn't been that different from my parents, um, because I think mourning your parents is not like that. I don't think it's quite the same shape. There are elements that are the same, and parts of it can be very alike, but, but I don't think it's altogether alike. But, you know, somebody who's been a partner, a husband, a lover, a co-worker, uh, you know, somebody who's actually been totally enmeshed in your life for a long part of your adult life, the feeling of, of splitting out was very different, and I was very angry. And I didn't know why I was angry, but I was angry for all kinds of reasons that I try and elaborate in the book. But that anger um, collided with a particular anger in the political world, in the civil space, if you like. And I felt it because every time I went out, something terrible would happen to me. I thought, I, at first I thought, this is my fault, or this is John's fault, or it's the fault that I'm of the state that I'm in. But when I talked to friends, they too were having these terrible encounters in, in the public sphere. I mean, whether it was the raging voices on the radio, this is post-referendum, um, whether it was the fact that people were talking over each other on the television news in such kind of momentous ways, particularly after Trump had got in, that you couldn't make out what anybody was saying. And, you know, our, our newscasts tend to be quite, um, even when they're talking about death, I mean, you know, they're quite ordered. So all of this was happening in the political world, and I realized that there was a kind of anger that there too had been unleashed. And I wanted to, to, to anatomize, to discover, and I'm a writer, so I discover by writing. I don't actually sit and think. I mean, I do occasionally sit and think, or things come to me, but, but mostly I learn things when I ask questions when I'm writing. And I wanted to discover why it was that my inner state, as, as this, you know, woman, this woman in grief, if you like, was so akin 
to what I was encountering in the public realm. Um, it, it was palpable. And, and so the second part of the book is, in, in a sense, an anatomy of anger out there in the big wide world, um, you know, in the encounters you have on the tube, in my case with greengrocers uh, on the street, um, um, you know, all kinds of events in my daily life, car rage. I mean, you know, this stuff that goes on all the time. And the fact that we were in a moment of uh, political history when the politics of emotion had really taken over and been unleashed by certain kinds of uh, fiery um, celebrity-style politicians lying quite overtly and blatantly in the public sphere in, in ways that most people recognized, even though they were drawn in by it. And the being drawn in by it was interesting because I, too, was drawn in by it. And I'm, you know, normally quite a, a calm and reasonable person. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd find myself not only screaming at the radio, but, but you know, wanting to kill. <laughs> so, so I wanted to analyze yeah. that. And that's what I do in the second part of the book. And in order to analyze that, I had to go back into my own past mm. as well. No, I think I think about to, anger. Yeah. Um, I think we'll build up to anger by, by way of okay. um, a bit more on grief. And I was interested in when you said just now, when you were talking about your parents and the difference between your grief for your parents and your grief for John, but you also, in writing this, thought a lot about your mother's grief for your father. And I think one of the, the most powerful things that happens in this book is the way that your childhood comes into play, sort of mirroring lots of the emotions you're feeling in the present. And you also talk about grief and its effect on time. So it seems to be something, something both, both the particular parallels and the sense that you're losing your sense of time within that. I'd love you to talk about this, <laughs> But I'll, I'll try and answer. Maybe you can talk some more if I miss it, if I get it all wrong. <laughs> you know, like love affairs, death, one death brings others in its train. I mean, you know, very few things are completely unique by the time you get to my age. Uh, <laughs> I found myself thinking about my mother quite a lot, and the reason when my father had died, because he predeceased her. And one of the reasons I was thinking about her was that I realized that I was a mother to my children while all this was going on. And I really couldn't be this kind of angry, grieving mess that I sometimes felt I was on the inside. Um, I needed to be a responsible human being <laughs> and a mother. And I thought of my mother um, when my father had died and I had been there and we had both, you know, overseen his body and, and the things that had gone on with that and, and the way in which things repeat in families. There are internal hauntings within the family as well. And I realized that, you know, in certain guises, I might seem to be being like my mother after my father had died. And I had thought, of course, that she was the most abysmal person and, and um, not, not quite as badly or boldly as that. But I mean, I did think I wasn't very sympathetic to her way of grieving because she didn't show it. And, you know, again, the received ideas about grief are really a little bit like professional mourners in Greek tragedies where, where there is a public declamation of howling pain. Most often now, you know, particularly when people die in hospitals, you don't see that. I mean, people may cry, but you don't have that full-blown agony. Um, that's not 
what we consider to be either acceptable or, you know, what people seem to be able to do, because it's not only a question of acceptability. We grow up within our societies, and we are our societies. I mean, one of the things that death teaches you is that you are not an individual. <laughs> there is probably no such thing. You are actually made up of many other people, and you are also probably, uh, those many other people are influenced by the forms which your society takes on board. Anyhow, to go back to my mother, she had she had been very contained and, and and I thought it was because she probably didn't like my father very much in any case by the end. I mean they'd been through um, a world war together and you know the growth of their children and many grandchildren. Uh, but but I thought at the end they, they really just scolded each other rather a lot and, and at least my mother scolded my father. He grew more and more silent and she grew more and more bad and she took it she took life out on him and I being a daughter of course I mean in the traditional way was very much on my dad's side in the midst of all this I mean I could see that my mother was having a rough time but I was on my father's side and so when he died of course I was still on his side you'll see the elements of this as I describe them if you read the book because it, it's sort of uh, punctuated in, in a different way than I'm telling it now or in, in, in a more detailed way than I'm telling it now and so the, the, the fact that other people come into this grief, this grieving process, is because other people are always there. There's no such thing. I mean, we talk a lot about loneliness, but loneliness doesn't mean that you're an individual alone. <laughs> you're still composed of all those people in your life that you have either been brought up by. Um, they can be parents. They may not be parents. They may be teachers. Uh, the people that you've somehow taken in on the way. And they could be characters in books, but they, they are all part of you and and it's very hard to pull these things apart and say you know only this is the self because the self of course is always as you say also changing in time I think that sort of leads us into thinking about the relationship between grief and anger so you're going to read another passage as I said before I was very angry and I started to anatomize anger both politically and and individually or in the self um, since I've just said there's no such thing as the individual but there we go and I came across this passage from um, Seneca, the Roman Stoic philosopher. Many of you will know this. It's in a letter uh, uh, to his brother. And I'm going to read you a little bit of the letter and then say a bit about you know, myself in this context. Novartis is his brother's name. You have asked of me, Novartis, that I should write how anger may be soothed. And it appears to me that you are right in feeling a special fear of this passion, which is above all others hideous and wild. For the others have some alloy of peace and quiet, but this consists wholly in action and the impulse of grief, raging with an utterly inhuman lust. If you choose to view its results and the mischief that it does, no plague has cost the human race more dear. You will see slaughterings and poisonings, accusations and counter-accusations, sacking of cities, ruin of whole peoples, the persons of princes sold into slavery by auction, torches applied to roofs and fires not merely confined within city walls, but making whole tracts of countries glow with hostile flame. See the foundations of the most celebrated cities, hardly now to be discerned. They were ruined by anger. See deserts extending for many miles without an inhabitant. They have been desolated by anger. And he calls anger the, the um, short madness. And I say, 
after this extraordinary passage. I've, I've cut it up. There's more of it. No wonder I had been afraid of the raging man on the tube. No wonder I worried about the angry passion with which so many of my friends and I greeted first the referendum vote, then the ways in which the expression, the people, was mobilized to annihilate 48% of a population. And finally, the arrival of Trump, which sparked violent fantasies of assassination in a portion of the US and probably the UK too. No wonder in so many situations in my life I had tried to avoid rage. Even during the even during the early feminist days of consciousness raising, when we were all encouraged to let out the anger we felt at our treatment by men, whether lovers, fathers, professors, or bosses, and by our mothers, I was terrible at railing. Complaint, complaint yes, analysis, definitely, but anger? Well, I found it was almost impossible to build up a necessary sense of entitlement to sustain resentment or grievance for very long. Like some novelist already imagining characters, I could always see the other side, could find wrongs in other women and in myself. And though I might recognize the full brunt of patriarchal power, clearly see the injustices, I couldn't find the rage in myself to trump it out. I found it easier to feel anger at the wrongs done to others, say at racism in the US, than to myself, let alone myself as that generic creature called woman. I suspect that my inability to burst into rage was related to a fear of the anger of others. It was some kind of inner defense. Being contained meant that I didn't have to feel the full horror of being taken over by that combustible emotion. I didn't have to be or to go mad. I didn't feel better after explosions. Even as a teenager at my parents, I didn't feel cleansed or virtuous for more than three seconds. I felt depleted, less than human. Later, I always preferred to distract myself with a book or a conversation that didn't dwell on ills. Repeated it over and over, eruptions over wrongs that were minor in the scheme of things filled my universe in a gloomy black ash from which an exit was hard to find. Anger from my experience of it only bred more anger. Hang loose, let it all out. The fashionable dicta of the 60s and early 70s just didn't work for me. I liked form. I liked restraint, even if I hadn't yet read Seneca. I liked civility, the necessary constraints of society, of the company of others. I was in the wrong generation. I was also, after John died, in the wrong skin, and it seemed in the wrong country. Thank you. It's an incredible passage, and I think this whole section about about these many different types of anger. I mean, it really resonated for me. It made me realize how frightened I've been of feeling angry and of other people's anger and how sort of paralyzing that is. Do you think, I think you have some sense that there's a kind of generational difference among women, that women are finding it easier to be angry? Is that easy? I think people generally now are finding right. it easier to be angry. And I think women too, I mean, I think the Me Too movement is a way of actually saying, yes, be angry. And, you know, there are many objects of anger many of them perhaps predatory men. I didn't have that in my life, but, but you know, yes, I can see it. And there's also the kind of anger, which is, you know, what I call in the book, ressentiment, which you all know about in this bookshop, <laughs> and is about, you know, the politics of resentment, which also have a, a, a burden 
in the musical sense, the anger to them all the time, and which can be sustained over long periods, and are about injustice. And I do understand that kind of anger, and I do occasionally share it, but not to the point where I can go out and kill somebody, although these days you never know. <laughs> but but um, I think, I mean, my own sense of where this book takes me in exploring anger is that anger is, is very useful if you can use it as a negotiating position, if you can bring a kind of rationality to it. I don't think it's very useful in explosions. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And I think politically what we're now suffering is a kind of explosion uh, which keeps being, you know, the, the fuel keeps being put on the fire so that we can all continue to feel explosive. And I fear that after the, you know, the full burden of the explosion has taken place, um, we'll be left in a very sorry place because I mean, we I haven't think negotiated. One of the things that's so powerful about your book is the way that it it kind of shows each of us as living in our own personal universes of, of kind of damage and fear and, and in which the anger is such a, a sort of unstable force. And yet this political world in which in which we're sort of required to see it as stable. And I think this will be something that, I mean, it feels quite cha- a sort of challenge of the book to, to sort of look at political life as made up of... Yes, of personal life yeah. and many personal lives. I mean, I've, you know, I think there's a way in which politics and the social sphere bring out certain things that are within all of us. And it can bring out our reasonableness, and it can bring out our civility, it can bring out our kindness, our generosity, or it can bring out other things which are probably not so very useful at most points in time. And where they do happen, I mean, where you think of revolutionary moments, they have been useful in a sense, but they haven't always ended up with justice either. <laughs> and usually only elements of that justice have come in place after a great deal of, of, of horror. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a reactionary, so I'm not, I'm not saying this in, 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 you know, the wrong kind of political guise, but I think that's the case. I, you know, I think where does anger come from in the individual? Well, that's a very interesting thing to investigate as well. Mm. And do you think, I mean, now that you have had this period of anger has it has, and, and come out of it, do you feel like it's sort of on a personal level been useful to face anger in yourself and, and sort of integrate that? I'm still not completely not angry. <laughs> um, but it's not, it's, not, it's not a rage anymore. Do you feel I'm not a fury. Having, it? I mean, do, do you think having it, had it. Um, no, I don't feel better for having had it. No, sort of feel better as in happier, but, but sort of, do you think it's a kind of a necessary part of the... Well, I think I've learned something, but I've only learned something by actually doing quite a lot of, of, or making a great attempt to think about it. I don't think I would have learned it if I just had the rage. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it's it's not a it's not a simple process. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people explode and then they're fine. Um, I've never quite been able to do that, and I try I and just, see why. Okay. I think for me, I feel like my fear of anger sort of enables me. Prevents me from facing situations as a kind of equal player. If, if your first instinct is to run away, yes, 
Well, you know, Darwin says anger is a, a, a fear or uh, fear and flight emotion. I mean, that's where it comes in the animal kingdom. You know, you bare your teeth and you scowl and, and then you fight or you run. <laughs> and of course, I mean, that's the case, but we're more complicated than that as well. I think a lot of the anger that, that women feel now and men feel against women is, is actually, it's both very interesting and useful, but also very, potentially very dangerous. I mean, I've, I've been through I'm old. <laughs> I've been through two backlashes now. And I think with each gain, sets of gains that women have made in this sphere, there has come a, a kind of a backlash amongst men. And it hasn't made relations between what we now call the genders any easier. I think, you know, uh, uh, some of the, some of the strange gender problems that, are, that the times have thrown up are linked to that. And I don't, I don't know how we, we go the next step. I mean, we will. And it's important, you know, the humiliations and vulnerabilities of small children, mm. um, which is the next section yeah. of the book. I mean, maybe um, tell us a bit about how that section came about. Did you, once you, I mean, what, what well, did you I, know? Well, then I, you know, I got stuck. I mean, I, I thought, you know, how do, I, how do I go back and find out why I am, I, I'm interested in the development of the human mind, both historically and, and individually. I can take that off, thank you. Because I think it has a lot to do with the fact that women are mothers. And, and I ended up back with childhood for many reasons, emotional reasons as well, because I was a grandmother during this time and I was with small children again for the first time in many years. And I suddenly looked at these children afresh and thought, oh, they're so interesting. <laughs> Look at all the things that they experience and do and see and feel. Not necessarily see, but certainly feel and express. And um, I thought, yes, I, I can I begin to see more about vulnerability. You know, when you're a mother, you've got, you can't see yourself enacting the kind of mother that you are, not, not until a little while later. But I can see why small children are afraid of their parents, why they turn away from them, why, you know, um, as a grandparent, you see a great many more things, and, and uh, it's very interesting. So the, the, this, the, the humiliation of small children and the vulnerability of small children, I think, particularly with, with men, feeds into eventually into their misogyny because they've experienced this and they've been so much with women as small boys, um, small girls too. Women don't love mothers either. Let's not forget. And one of the things you bring out in that final section is, is the sort of rather moving story of, of your grandson Manny and his sibling rivalry when his brother is born. Perhaps this is the moment to hear some of that. I think one of the great things about this passage which Lisa is going to read is, is that it's very funny and as a kind of reminder that this is also a, a very often funny book in places. This is a it? funny book. Yeah. <laughs> this is a book with a lot of humour in it. I hope. I hope you get it. <laughs> humour is not always easy on the page. Okay, so my, my husband, John, was very attached to our first grandchild, and that's one of the reasons that he appears in the books with such emphasis. But he wasn't around when the second one was born. And... Manny went through what many children go through when they have siblings, as Lara will testify. <laughs> um, and I think this is not a part of life that one normally can remember, not even analysis, sometimes an analysis, because a lot of it happens pre-language. And pre-language moments are very, very hard to, to somehow bring back. Very few people can. So I'm seeing this from the outside. Manny was just under two when 
just under two, I think, I can't remember exactly, but, I, but around two, when his parents came home with his brother, Isaiah. And he was just breaking into speech. And, you know, speech came quickly after that. And, and he started to talk. And we used to talk a lot. I would see him every weekend for a couple of days, and we talked. So this is about sibling rivalry. And I describe Manny's new state. Manny's parents were, are wonderful with him, but he suffers his predicament nonetheless, predicament of being doubled. He begins to hide things. He isn't as, con as companionable at nursery. He hits someone. He's not interested in learning things. He has secrets. They're very open, but they're also secret. He no longer seems to know how to hide in hide-and-seek games and always just wants to be found. Maybe hiding is too scary. Maybe nobody will want to find him again. The images on my stairs go scarier, too, particularly a large drawing of a grizzled, mustached, bare-chested, and bespectacled man reading a newspaper in a striped deck chair on a beach. He's sitting next to a woman, but Nemani never notices the woman. It's the man he insists is his dad he's intent on. All this drawn man shares with his father is gender, but he's terrified of him. In Manny's eyes, no matter how much I explain, this remains one very angry dad man, as furious as Manny was when his brother was brought home. That's an earlier scene. I have to hold his hand and protect him to go past the drawing. The nearby self-portrait his father sketched at school, which is a good likeness, also frightens him, but not so horribly as the beach man, who seems to stand in for all paternity. Le nom du père the French would say, a culture that's been to collective school with a psychoanalyst, Jacques Lacan. I ask Manny whether his dad shouts at him a lot. No, he says, though I know he does on occasion. His fantasy dad is palpably far scarier than his real dad. It's probably because he's feeling guilty and is worried about punishment. Castration anxiety, Freud might have said, which only means fearing you'll be cut down to teeny size from the omnipotent feeling your mumfers gave you when she answered all your cries and you adored each other. Punishment in Manny's internalized world seems to be in the offing at every moment. Loving his little brother, demanded and expected as it is, and sometimes even felt, is proving so difficult. Isn't his just being there punishment enough? His own uncontrollable desires to hurt are far more murderous, I suspect, than what he acts out, however surreptitiously. surreptitiously. They're not approved, even by himself, and he's always feeling guilty, even before he's done very much. But he's so young, he can't really express his inner anguish or tell us what kinds of thoughts and fantasies run through his mind. Whenever I see the boys together, Manny has an arm round his brother, as if he wants to hug him, but the hug inadvertently turns into a stranglehold. <laughs> it's the same with a pat that somehow turns into a pinch, or a kiss that mutates into a painful squeeze. Yet he can't keep his arms off the baby. He has to cuddle until Isaiah cries or screams. Undoubtedly, as a result of all this, Isaiah has developed an ear-piercing alert signal. We can't keep our eyes off them for an instant. That grizzled spectacle man at the top of the stairs is watching too, even when Manny's real dad or his real brother isn't in the room. This isn't all. Whatever Manny's doing, whether it's running about with the ball, balls or the sticks he has now developed a liking for, or resting, he, can, he can't rid himself of his obsession with Isaiah. 
We're having a walk and chasing our shadows. He suddenly shouts, Isaiah, and stamps on the ground. He bites into an apple, and Isaiah turns up. We're singing songs he knows perfectly well, and he interpolates them with his brother's name. One, two, buckle my Isaiah, the grand old duke of Isaiah, and so on and on. It begins to be tedious, as the obsessions of another person inevitably are. The Isaiah tick endears him to no one. I think he knows, but there is nothing he can do. He just somehow has to get through, and we have to help and hold him along the way. Punishment will do, li will do little except make us feel better, and only for a very short time. But the exclamation no becomes the most often used in my vocabulary. Manny starts wanting to dress up all the time. He becomes a superhero complete with cape. It's good to be big and strong. It's super to be in control of the uncontrollable. For a Spider-Man who can stick to anything, I have a suspicion he'd really like to stick to his mummy, is his favorite. Then Superman, then Batman, but any mask being will do. He's even happy wearing the bottom donkey mask I buy him. He races around happily, makes grand entrances at gatherings. Anything is far better than being himself. In fact, I suspect he feels more himself, far freer, when he masquerades than as that poor, torn creature who's driven to repeat Isaiah all the time and be good to him. Superheroes are big, strong, and powerful. They're not just tiny boys who are enjoined to be big boys and behave like big brothers. Thank you. I think at this point we'll sort of open up to the audience. So I, should, I should just say in, in, in relation to, to that last section that, that you know, this, this kind of superego nonsense, we, we, you know, we use it as a nonsense thing, but, but you can see it beginning to be there and being very punishing, even in a tiny child, this, this struggle with it and, and what it does to him. It's horrible. <laughs> yes. Questions? I'm experiencing a bit of anger at the moment, and I'm really glad to have it out. You know, suddenly I haven't talked about it. This is really interesting. Um, I, did your own anger at John's death, which must have been terrible, terribly sad for you, did it, did it help you with dealing with Manny's anger at the birth of his little brother? Not directly like that, no. I think the fact that there was collective rage out in the streets, I mean, that, you know, I kept bumping into people who were just horrible, <laughs> did help me in a way because um, it made me feel less alone and in that, you know, there were a lot of kind of semi-mad people out there. But, but in the child, it's actually, it's, it's, you know, all you want to do is cry. And it didn't make me feel better about myself at all. <laughs> you, you, do, you don't quite know what to do with this level of pain. It's so intense in small children because mm. they, could, they don't speak. You can't. All you can do is distract them. I, be, I became an expert in distraction. I, those of you who may have read Mad, Bad, and Sad, you'll, you'll remember this great mind doctor, the first of the great psychiatrists called uh, Pinel. And he practices with his, the people in the lunatic asylum. His form of therapy is to practice distraction. And I thought, this is just brilliant. I mean, distraction is, you know, it's just a form of CBT, actually, uh, but more inventive form. And he practices distraction with his patients. And, and with Manny, with my grandson, as with myself, indeed, distraction worked a treat. You know, as soon as I would get one of these mad inner voices, I'd say, no, let's go read, let's turn on the telly, let's, you know, whatever, anything, <laughs> anything but. Let's dig a hole in the garden. 
Not that kind of hole, but. <laughs> I'm interested in the structure which, which the book's taken. If I'm right, the, there are three sections, um, grief, two. Three. Th three, three. sorry. <laughs> grief. The third uh, one is called love, and it is about love, and that's what right. really saw me through. It wasn't the anger. It was so, so it love. is a movement but from some, some sort of, you could characterize something negative into something a bit more positive with that trajectory. And I, I was wondering if that was something which occurred organically and then you expressed it in the writing or if, if the writing in some way dictated that structure. Did you feel obliged to move from negative to positive when writing the book? It wasn't an obligation. I mean, I, you know, this is in a, the book is in a sense in part a self-analysis as well as a, an analysis of the times. And, and I realized that the times, I haven't read the right section, so you don't know this, but the times that I felt best during this, this period of intense grieving when I was at my worst was when I was with the grandchildren, and um, initially just a grandchild and then both of them. And I think one of the reasons for this has to do with play. And I mean, you know, I started to think about play. Many people have thought about play before. It's, I'm not new to this. But, but for me, what play does is that it stops time. You know, in the same way, why, why do men love football so much? I mean, women love it too, but men love it historically more. I think it's because the time is all internal to the game, and there is no more time outside. I mean, you've actually stopped time. It's not, it's not moving. Well, play is like that. Play with a small child for me, in which, you know, I can be as silly as I like and, and, and you know, say inane things or sing songs or, you know, toss brick houses down, whatever it happens to be. That is time stopped. And time stopped means that nobody has died and nothing has happened and, and you know, you're in this different space. In a strange way, writing is like that too. And I think if you examine why a lot of people write, it's because there is a, and even, even the ones who complain about how difficult it is and they, you know, that it, it, it tortures them and they're blocked and da da da. What are they doing? They're in a trance where time has stopped. Real time no longer exists. And, and for me, you know, what helped me to come back to myself was those times of stop time which were playful and loving and, and um, good. Does that, does that answer your question, which I now... Um, and why is it in three parts? That's the way it happened. It's, book, it's, it's an odd book for me in that it's in very, very short chapters. It's in fragments because my life was quite fragmented at the time. And that's the time of writing. The time that I could write was the time of a chapter. <laughs> And, and that's how it happened. And so the form is a strange form. I mean, I think in retrospectively, it's quite an interesting form, mm. but, it, but, it, but it happened organically. And did you, did you kind of move, did you change the order around of those fragments, or did they? The, the, the section that I changed the most um, is my editor here. No. Oh, Louise, hi. <laughs> There's the great Louise Haynes. <laughs> the section that I changed most, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, because one of the things that goes along with this kind of state is that you realize that you do misremember quite a lot. You, you both remember accurately and you misremember both the, the past and bits of the present. But as I remember the process, the middle section was the section which worked least well in my first version. And that's because I had taken myself out of it. 
mostly. And it was, it was an attempt to look at the political and the social sphere. And it was, it was slightly ungainly in terms of the whole book. And so it ended up with, with a different balance within it. Um, Lisa, I don't want to ask you to sort of make predictions, but I'm thinking if you go, you sort of went through this whole feeling of, of grief and rage after John's death and Manny goes through something similar after Isaiah is born, do you think, and presumably come to some kind of reconciliation with it eventually or, you know, living with those feelings, do you think that it's possible to have something similar in the political sphere after this moment of rage? What comes of it? Oh, God, I'm not a very good predictor. Um, uh, uh, you know, that's why I don't go on the Today program too much, because if I have to have a very strong opinion, I immediately think of its opposite. <laughs> but but um, I think politics goes in cycles. Uh, some of those cycles are far direr than anything I have individually been through <laughs> and, and Manny has been through. So I, I don't want, you know, one doesn't want to make an easy leap from the individual or the personal, the inner, to, to the public. I think there are resonances. I think they, you know, they, they can mirror each other at times. But even with all the help of Adorno, I wouldn't want to make a leap from, you know, personal forms of identification and ego ideals and mourning and anger to what happens on the political sphere. I think there are many steps in between. A lot of those steps are also economic, which are, you know, related to politics, but sometimes not directly. So do I think there can be reconciliation? Well, I hope so, because, you know, I watched a program last night about, <laughs> about early forms of human and the form that, that was completely wiped out from the DNA line and, and was the smallest amongst the Neanderthals and the others was this form on an island where they didn't interbreed because they couldn't get off and nobody got on. And this is why people speculate that they're so small and they disappeared from the DNA line. And I worry about that in terms of Britain. <laughs> But but I hope but I hope that that's not the case. I hope it's just a momentary um, um, image that came to mind. <laughs> uh, Lisa, I, I wondered if in your uh, in writing the book you had bumped up against the idea, which is very prevalent in our culture, of closure, and whether you had some thoughts about that because it's a, it's an idea that sort of saturates. Um, a lot of thinking about grief, and that can be, in my experience, less than helpful. Okay. Well, we haven't we haven't talked about that, and um, we haven't talked about the the psychotherapeutic, uh, the counselling. We haven't talked about the industry of bereavement. Um, nor have we talked about you know some of the people who've written about this in the past, not from the point of view of an individual in the midst of it, but, but from you know, a psychoanalytic point of view. I, I mean, I do talk about Freud in the book, and I do talk about bereavement a little bit. My sense of this is that it's much more like John Berger than it is like anything else, which is the dead don't go away. They're always with us in one form or another. They may not always be with you. They may not be obsessing you as you move along as, and, and as happens in the, the first stage of grief. But they're always there in one form or another. They're, they're, they, you, know, you enact them in various ways. So no, I don't think a year is the end of anything. And I'm not a great believer in closure because I don't think there is closure within human beings. I, they die, but 
you know, there's still memory of them. So is there closure in that sense? No. Is there closure in most things? No. It's a terrible word. I don't know why it became, uh, it, it, it's like uh, going forward. I mean, what kind of a stupid expression is that? <laughs> um, the, you know, the, there are these, these tag words, these buzzwords that take over, which become repeated and become cliches, but don't mean anything anymore. They're just ways of filling airtime. I may be wrong. I'm often wrong. <laughs> you talked about the, lo the loss of civility. Where does that go? Is there any way to recover from the vulgarity and civility that we're experiencing all over the place these days? I hope so. I mean, you know, again, this is a future question, and I hope there is, and I hope that there'll be a, you know, a swing back. I mean, one of the reasons I got so annoyed about the word the people is that, of course, the people was 52% in one referendum based on a very small question. And um, it was the media who then bumped it up, and the politicians who had reason to bumped it up to be the entirety. It was never the entirety. There was still 48% on the other side. And I hope, you know, that there may be another kind of swing when, when the 48% who are perhaps more civil, who knows, maybe not in all ways. I mean, one of the things that has happened in, in the history of our democracies is, is a kind of easygoingness has come into the public sphere, which is very nice in many respects, but may also have its negative points in that I think people also like to have form. And I think we've forgotten about form, and, and I hope form will come back. And I don't mean necessarily the kind of formality, you know, which means that you have to wear a three-piece suit at all times and a bowler hat, and that you're just a bureaucratic statistic. But, you know, we're very good at being statistics and being informal simultaneously, and it doesn't seem to have got us to very good places all the time. Some, in some places, you know, it has been good. I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not a totalizer. <laughs> um, my question is about the, the thing you spoke about at the beginning, about the kind of self-preoccupation and kind of being a bit separate from yourself and being able to think about and, and view your emotions in that way. And I wanted to ask, if you think that's a kind of a writerly perspective or a kind of if that's a if writer's a, a writer's perspective. perspective or or a psychoanalytic perspective or just something of of a of a personality trait and how that affects what effect it has on a person and then how that relates to anger and the thing of being i guess being able to see the other perspective and then not doing anything with your anger Gosh, I think you have to read the book to get the full answer to that, because that's a very complicated one. I mean, you know, I do think a kind of, you know, almost a kind of anthropological distance from yourself <laughs> is something that grows up in many people who read a lot of books when they're young, because they play a lot of characters. And so, you know, they're, they're confronted with a lot of others um, in their imaginary space. And they know they're not those others, but they also are. So there's already a kind of doubleness. And in that sense, you know, the reading of stories or the telling of stories, I think, is a very important function early in life. Because I think if you can be a little bit separate from yourself, there's a kind of breathing space in which you can catalyze a lot of the stuff that goes on as you go about your day-to-day -day life. Maybe that's all I want to say about that.
because I've actually kind of run out of steam. <laughs> I think also the book is there um, to speak eloquently uh, to continue the, co the conversation. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you, Lara. That was wonderful. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.